Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together to, again, even, uh, even if it's just virtually. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're, we're all involved in different areas in our lives where we've acquired skills over the years and built up a, a body of uh, competence and knowledge. And one of the things that happens when you become knowledgeable and, and skilled in some area is that you move from a simplistic understanding where maybe you're just dabbling in something and doing it for fun to a, a, a more complex understanding, a technical understanding, even a philosophical understanding. You know, so for example, when you're just a little kid and you're playing hockey, maybe on the ice, maybe just in your driveway or in the road, you're not concerned at that point with the, the strategy around, around how line changes work. You're not watching videos of yourself in order to get better and correct little details that maybe you're, you're, you're falling short on. You're probably not even worried about rules like offside. You're just out in the driveway having fun, shooting, passing a little bit. Maybe you're not even shooting at a net that has a goalie in it. You're just, you're just doing it for fun and you really don't care that much. Or, you know, when you first pick up a camera, maybe you get your first camera that isn't your, your phone and you're like, what do all these buttons and dials do? And you read the first few pages of the instruction manual and you just turn that dial to P for program and, and you just shoot away on automatic mode. Later on, there'll be opportunities for learning about things like the difference between shutter priority and aperture priority and, and how f-stops and minimum focusing distance affect your depth of field and how autofocus actually works, you know, all that kind of stuff. That comes with time as you build up more skill. Two things follow from this though. One is that, you know, as you get better at something, whether that's an artistic pursuit or a technical skill, <laughs> you often end up pretty embarrassed about your earlier endeavors, even where you got results that you thought at the time were quite outstanding. We probably all know this feeling. The second thing though is, is the struggle with knowing that things are complex alongside the reality that there are usually well-intentioned but uninformed lay people who want to tell you their opinion and their solution. You know, if you're a professor, you will have encountered this. You all have first-year college students that think they know everything, even though their knowledge is pretty limited and they're real stuck in just black and white thinking. Or if you work in a trade of some sort, perhaps you've encountered this in a client who's just flabbergasted and dumbfounded that the work you're going to do is going to take a whole day and cost all that money, even though they think it should just be a really, really simple thing. Today, we begin a new series in, in our, our teaching and preaching ministry here at the church in Karenport. And this one's going to go on for quite a long time, I think. We're going to begin it by looking at a verse in the Bible that's fallen victim probably more than any other to this issue of the overly simplistic understanding. Understanding this frequently quoted verse, and it's Jeremiah 29, 11, just so you know, if you want to flip there in your Bibles. But understanding this verse in light of its context, in in the chapter of Jeremiah 29, but also in the broader history of Israel as a whole. That's going to be so important, and it's going to lay some foundations for the series ahead. And I'm calling this series, 
a hope, and a future, Israel in exile and beyond. We're going to be following the story of Israel as their land is conquered and as they go into exile in Babylon. We'll look at what happened there and how they coped with that, and eventually we'll even look at how God brought them back and what issues they faced at that time as they tried to rebuild their society. Now I recognize this is a bit of an ambitious project. We'll cover some large sections of the Old Testament in this, but just so you know, we're not going to be so ambitious that we're going to go through every single verse one at a time in Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Ezra and Nehemiah, Zechariah, but we are going to look at key texts throughout these books to get a, a broad picture of Israel's history at this time. And I think the reasons for doing this should be pretty clear. We're facing our own sort of an exile. A situation has happened in our world that none of us would have ever imagined, that no one has ever encountered before, and that many of us, like the ancient Israelites, thought surely this will never happen in our lifetime. It won't happen to us. So how do we live as God's people in a strange season like this? How do we wrestle with things like God's sovereignty, his goodness, and his justice? And how will we live when this season is over? I mean, even if, hopefully it doesn't last 70 years. These are questions we'll begin to look at today. We'll spend the foreseeable future exploring these and hopefully finding some answers. It might take a long time, but seriously, doesn't look like any of us are going anywhere anytime soon. So maybe instead of going on trips that we all want to go on, let's take a tour through this portion of the Old Testament. Found a really good video you might want to have a look at by the Bible Project. I'll put a link to that in the description of this video. It gives a good summary of the exile, and uh, especially this chapter, as, as the prophet Jeremiah advises God's people on how they ought to live in exile. So you might want to pause this video and go watch that one and then come back. Or perhaps uh, you just want to carry on watching and, and watch that at some later point. But I'd encourage you to give that a look. In any case, let's just review for a little bit here. I know that this is a part of, of God's word that maybe you don't spend as much time in. So we'll review the history a little. Remember, uh, dates before Christ go in reverse. That might be helpful to know. For the sake of round numbers and for the sake of keeping this all on one slide, we'll start at King David at around 1000 BC. So by about 930 BC, the kingdom divides after the time of Solomon and you get the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. Neither kingdom was great at staying faithful to the Lord, although the northern kingdom did much, much worse. At least the southern kingdom had a few good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, but the north did not. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered by the big world power at that time, the Assyrian Empire. Things continue on a serious downhill trend in the south, and in 606 BC, Jerusalem is seriously threatened by the newer world power on the scene, Babylon. And at that time, there's a big deportation of people 
from the professional classes back to Babylon, and another one happens about 10 years later. Eventually, Jerusalem revolts against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he sends his army in 586 and levels the city and takes off a whole bunch more people into exile. And it's in that, that in-between time, between the, the initial deportations and the final destruction of Jerusalem, that we find the prophet Jeremiah. Some of the people, and Daniel was likely one of them, have been taken away into exile. But the city of Jerusalem still stands. They still have a sort of figurehead king and a figurehead temple. But Jeremiah knows this is not going to last. The people have not changed their ways. They are not sorry for their sins, and they refuse to turn back to God. And moreover, some of them, both in Jerusalem and in Babylon, remain convinced that this isn't a very big deal. This is all just going to blow over, and things will get back to normal. Jeremiah tells them, don't believe that. It's not true. This is going to be a long haul. That's the context of Jeremiah 29. It contains a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent to the exiles who had already gone to Babylon. So let's read that together, the first 14 verses of Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. 
You know, I think we might be in a place, maybe for the first time in a long time, to, to really understand Jeremiah 29, 11 in its proper context, right? This isn't about getting a scholarship or, or winning at volleyball. This is about God taking care of his people through a season of hardship and even judgment. Of course, we can't draw 100% direct parallels between ancient Israel's situation and our own. They, they are different, and we will explore that. At the same time, though, we are, I believe, in a season that seems a lot like exile. We've been, we've been uprooted from all that's familiar. This affects all areas of our life, just like it did for the ancient Israelites, right? Social, economic, educational, and maybe most importantly for us and for them, worship. And there maybe even is a sense that God could be judging us. So here's the first challenge right away. Right off the start, the first thing God does in his words that he gives to the prophet Jeremiah is to claim responsibility for this exile. He makes that clear. I think he even says it multiple times if you want to go back and look at that passage. This is the challenging thing for, for us and for them. We're prepared to say, I think, we're, we're prepared to say, oh yes, God, God permits, God allows uh, hard things, disasters, wars, even atrocities, but does he, does he cause them? Now that's a fine line to walk. We lean too much into the view that God just allows these things to happen, we run the risk of starting to think that maybe he's not actually in control. Maybe these things just, just happen, and he's even caught off guard by them and trying to come up with some sort of a plan B. I remember this one time, I think it was last summer, when uh, Dershel found a new recipe for beef and bean burgers. They sounded tasty. The pictures in the magazine certainly looked tasty. We tried to make them. Only they didn't stay burgers. They certainly did not stay burgers when we tried to grill them on the barbecue. They didn't even really stay burgers when we tried to cook them in a frying pan. I mean, maybe it would have worked with one of those uh, George Foreman style grills that, that would press them together. But I'm wandering too far. The thing is, they were just too crumbly to eat as burgers. They fell apart. So what did we do? Well, since they actually were tasty, it was mostly just the sticking together that was the problem. Uh, we just used them as, as ground beef and bean mix and used them for wraps or burritos, I guess. Problem solved. Plan B turned out not so bad. Pretty tasty, pretty good. But friends, that's not how God works. Right? He, he, he doesn't have to scramble to come up with a plan B. He's not, he's not just up in heaven watching the, the events of the world, whether that's the Babylonians invading Judah or whether that's COVID-19 sweeping around the world. He, he's not up there going, oh dear, I sure didn't see this one coming. That, that, ooh, that didn't turn out how I thought it would. Let's see if I can yeah, come up with a plan B and salvage this. Of course, if we lean too hard into God's sovereignty and all this, we can end up with, with a view of God that's, that's pretty mean and, and rather arbitrary, and whose character we can't make sense of, and whom we might have 
a hard time calling good and loving. Nevertheless, in a season such as this, I think we have to lean a bit more into the sovereignty of God than we might like to do, or else we won't learn the lessons he wants to teach us because we keep assuming wrongly that we can fix our own problems. We need to remember that God is in charge even of really trying circumstances. Next week, we'll get a little bit more into the idea of exile as punishment or, or as judgment. I don't think those are quite the same thing. For now, though, let's, let's look at something Jesus said that I found really helpful in this season. In Luke chapter 13, you can flip there if you want. I'll just read this momentarily. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. I love this part. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. I just love what Jesus does here. He reminds everyone that when you point the finger at someone else in judgment, you inevitably have a bunch pointing back at yourself, and that's his point, or at least that's how we should be viewing this. When you see something bad happen in the world, like what's happening now, don't take an attitude of moral superiority. Learn what you can from it. See it as a warning and as a prompt and as an urge from God to, to find forgiveness while you still have a chance. And that goes for those of us who are believers, right? We, we still need to be reminded that there are areas in our life that need work, that need God's forgiveness, that, that need the cleansing that only he offers. See it as an opportunity to correct course before you crash. I think as individual believers, there's lots for us to learn here, and I believe we as churches and as the church have much to learn. And I pray that we will learn from this season. These are going to be themes, all of these things are going to be themes we revisit multiple times as we draw them out from different passages of Scripture and as we make our way through this series. So I'll move on to the most famous verse itself. 29.11 I know the plans I have for you, you know, plans to give you a hope and a future, even though God has sent his people into exile. And even though that's punishment or at least judgment, for their sins, he still promises to bring them back. Here's the thing with God's judgment, and where I think it differs from punishment. Punishment is, is it's strictly speaking, about getting even or, or making the other party suffer in, in like manner. Judgment, on the other hand, or at least judgment in God's sense of the word, it always it always has this, this rehabilitative element to it, or, or at least the hope of it, right? God's judgment is always designed to teach his people 
and bring them back into the right way. And that's ultimately how we need to understand Jeremiah 29, 11, right? This judgment has happened. It's going to go on for some season. It's not going to be pleasant. But at the end of that, God's people will seek him again. He will restore their fortunes. And we see that in, in verses 12, 13, and 14. Even when God has to bring hard things on his people, terrible things even, his goal is not destruction. His goal is the restoration that we find on the other side of that. And let's be clear, for God's people, when Jeremiah wrote this, there was great hardship in store. Most of the people that Jeremiah sends this letter to, they're not going to live long enough to see God's restoration and the fulfillment of his promise that's coming on the other side of the exile. I mean, look at this. What's it say in this passage? It says the exile is going to take 70 years to run its course. The only people who, who hear these words that are going to live to see that promise are little, little kids, small children. They're the only ones who will see the fulfillment. And yet, that doesn't mean that God's promises to his people are not true. The other thing to note, however, is that while God's promises are true and they are certain, the restoration will not happen without the cooperation of God's people. It says, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Then I will gather you. This is straight out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. This, this isn't some new, new curveball that, that God threw at his people that was a, a new idea. All the way back in those ancient promises. I'll read a few verses here. Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and cursing, curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children... Return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been scattered to the most distant lands under heaven. From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. I love the ending. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Jeremiah 29, 11 is, is really Jeremiah's explanation of promises already made way back in the book of Deuteronomy, even in the midst of, of consequences for their rebellion. God's purposes, they're not to destroy, and they're not just to merely punish. They're to, to restore and to purify. I, like I said, I love that last part, that the Lord was going to give his people through this new hearts, could actually obey him and love him. That's the goal. That's the hope in the future that Jeremiah is pointing at. Restoration, yes, of their fortunes and return to their homeland, but at an even deeper level, restoration of God's true intent for his people, that they would love him and serve him with all their hearts.
we conclude, I want to look at the middle of this passage, if that's not too weird to, to end in the middle. Because that's where the real practical application for us lies, I think. Jeremiah says to those who have already gone into exile that this is going to be a long haul. As we saw in that video, he, he urges them toward a responsible course, He's saying to them, it's, it's right to miss your homeland. That's, that land was promised and given to you by God. It's okay to long to be back there, but don't let that turn you bitter or rebellious. And it's right to settle in and settle down in this new land of your exile, but don't assimilate either. The end goal of this is to love the Lord and seek him more deeply, not to forget about him. But Jeremiah is very clear to God's people in this passage. This is going to be a while. Seventy years are appointed for Babylon before this is going to be over. You know, I wonder if we would be quite as keen to put Jeremiah 29, 11 on as many plaques and inspirational posters as we do if we had to put that bit about these promises are only going to come true 70 years from now. Probably wouldn't be quite so eager to quote that verse in the way we do. But in light of the fact that this is going to go on for some time, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, do normal life things as much as you can. Start businesses, do agriculture, raise families, build homes, settle down. This isn't to say that they were going to love their life in exile. It doesn't say that they wouldn't long for it to be over, of course. But you know, it is to say that it's going to hurt a lot less if they and us are not consumed with just obsessing about its end or being continually disappointed that it's not over yet. So there are important lessons for us there. You know, we, we too have longings. We long for restrictions to be lifted. We long to be able to travel more freely and, and spend time with our friends and families the way we're accustomed to do. We long to be able to meet together in worship, in gatherings, both large and, and small. But as far as we can tell, meeting together in that way, and especially in large gatherings, that's still quite a ways off for the foreseeable future. So let's resolve to get on with things as well as we can in this season. Make the most of it and make the best of it. And live in the midst of this time with, with a settled sort of hope rather than just an anxious kind of obsessing. He also urges them to seek the welfare of this, this pagan place. Living as a minority in a, in a pagan or secular society is a bit of a delicate dance. You can't just assimilate, and as I mentioned earlier, but you can't just be continually rabble-rousing and causing trouble either. And I think we find ourselves in a similar place there also. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I have concerns about governments taking too much power and people actually being rather too willing to give up rights and freedoms. I don't think you have to wear a tinfoil hat to have some of those concerns about how long does this really need to go on versus how long is it going to go on? 
Nevertheless, I think that the best way forward that we can hope for is seeking the good of our nation and our society as a whole as much as we can. Like God's people in Babylon, our good depends on our society's good to a large extent. So here's how I want us to respond. I think, I think initially we had probably all hoped, maybe even predicted, that this wasn't going to last that long. Kind of like some of those early exiles that went in that first wave, hoping this would all just blow over and we'd get back to normal soon. But this is going to be a while. You might have noticed for today's video, I, I have a bit more of a, a defined setup for preaching, and, and I hope to make some further improvements even in the days and, and weeks ahead. Some, some things have been ordered. They just take longer to get here than they might typically do. But another thing, or a particular thing, you might have noticed, is that I have here with me some of the things that we would typically have uh, placed up at the front of our worship gathering. Right? We have a, a Bible that reminds us of God's revelation to us. We have, we have here a, a, a cup and a plate that reminds us of the Lord's Supper. We have a, a bowl and, and a pitcher that reminds us of baptism. Sorry, I couldn't fit the whole stock tank in here. It would take up too much room in my office. And we have a cross. I made this cross as part of the response to our, our time in Holy Week and put it in my window. And Afterwards, I decided to display it here in my office. But of course, the symbol of the cross reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice for us. So since it's going to be a while before we're back in a large group worshiping together, I would encourage you all at home to gather some of these same sorts of symbols and set them up in your home when and where you gather for worship as a household or as a family. Perhaps you want to create some sort of a box or a container that you store these things, a special place. You always put them during the week if you're not able to leave them up all the time. I know Pastor Heather has included some further ideas and instructions in the home worship service order for this week. And I would urge you, you know, don't just be like, oh, that's a cool idea, and then don't do anything. Actually, do these things. Set aside some time. This will help you to be really intentional about worshiping together. And it will mean we're, we're settling into a new routine for the foreseeable future. You know, you might want to include some other things. Uh, that are, are good symbols as well. Maybe, maybe something as simple as a, as a potted plant that reminds you of, of the tree of life. Uh, maybe a, a rock that reminds you that Jesus is our sure and certain foundation. Maybe a candle that reminds you that Jesus is the light of the world. These are all common symbols, very simple ones. These are symbols that are used in scripture for God and, and his dealings with us and to remind us of the great events of our salvation. So I'd encourage you, since we're not all meeting together and we're not all looking at the same ones up at the front of our church space, uh, get some in your home. Gather them together. This is just one more little way that you can be intentional about worshiping together in your home. One way that we can do this in the kind of exile season that we're in, but yet one, one way that we can settle down in the midst of this uh, plant some roots, and hopefully experience some growth in this time. You know, even as we settle down, 
into this new normal for the foreseeable future, let's take some steps. Let's take some concrete, practical steps to remind us of God's presence with us and among us for the duration of this time. Thank you for worshiping together today. Thank you for taking the time to do the things that God has called us to do, to worship together, to pray together, to hear from his word, and to respond to what he calls us to do. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your good promises to us. We thank you that even in the midst of challenging circumstances and, and difficult times, even difficult times that, that you have sent in some way that is hard for us to understand, we know that you're still good. We know that you're still at work. We know that you still have promises that you will keep to us as you did to your ancient people. We know that you are still present with us even when we can't be present with one another. So pray that in this season you will show us, guide us, how we can settle down for the interim and find stability and worship you with a sense of hope and peace rather than a sense of anxiety. We look to you for the time when this season is over, but in the meantime we pray, give us an assurance of your presence. Show us what it means to be your people. Jesus, our Savior's name we pray.